Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Why do you want to live into the future? What, what excites you about the future? I'd rather find out what's going on in the world and see what happens and see what the future turns into. You know, when people turn around to me and say, oh, why would you want to live forever? Life's rubbish. I just think that's a bit sad because I just don't feel that way. I think it's a worthwhile thing to do. And the thing that really makes it worthwhile is the fact that you could make it go on forever. If you died today, but you had the option to wake up 100, 1,000, 10,000 years in the future, would you? Why would you want to wake up in an unrecognisable world? Maybe because you're scared of death? Or are you just curious about the future? Perhaps optimistic about what humans might achieve? Well, there's a small group of people around the world who feel so optimistic about humanity's potential that they are preserving their bodies after death, all in the hope that they will one day be brought back to a better, brighter world. And the name of this ambulance to the future? Cryonics. Which? In simple terms, it's freezing dead people. But that's kind of a little bit crude for a description. That was Tim Gibson, one of today's guests, who works with volunteer organisation Cryonics UK. But before we get started, it is important to know human cryonic preservation is a speculative practice. An individual signs up to a cryonic service, normally by forking over a fair chunk of change, knowing that there are absolutely no guarantees. They know that they may never be reanimated because the technology to do so doesn't exist. At least, not yet. Instead, they are making a bet, rolling the dice, that someday there will be a discovery or a breakthrough and they'll have had the foresight to make sure that they would be there to see it. After all, you've got to be in it to win it.
Hi, I'm Dallas Campbell and you are listening to Patented. It's a podcast all about the history of inventions. And today I'm joined by two guests to explore the past and future of cryonics. You're going to hear more from Tim Gibson from Cryonics UK in a little bit. He's going to walk us through how they actually conduct procedures how much services cost and the legal status of cryonics. But first up, I am going to talk to Hayley Campbell. Hayley's a journalist and author of a new book all about the people who work with the dead and what they can tell us about the psychology of death in the West. Whilst reporting the book, she took a visit to the Cryonics Institute, a facility founded by Robert Ettinger in 1976, who's regarded as the father of cryonics. Hayley, welcome to the show. It's nice to have you. I'm really enjoying the book. I'm really, really enjoying it. Not just because of what it's about, obviously, which is fascinating, but some sparkling prose in there. It's really nice. <laughs> I keep finding little bits. I'm like, God oh, damn, I wish I'd written that. It's really nice. Actually, you know what? Can I read a bit? I wanted to read that James Baldwin yeah, bit sure. from the beginning. Oh, he's good. You know, start with James Baldwin. Yeah, James Baldwin, <laughs> a civil rights activist and writer from the 60s. Yeah, and writer... And general cool guy. This is what James Baldwin says at the beginning. I love it. I love it. Life is tragic simply because the earth turns and the sun extrably rises and sets. And one day for each of us, the sun will go down for the last, last time. Perhaps the whole root of our trouble, the human trouble, is that we will sacrifice all the beauty of our lives, will imprison ourselves in totems, taboos, crosses, blood sacrifices, steeples, mosques, races, armies, flags, nations, in order to deny the fact of death, which is the only fact we have. <sighs> He's so good. It's really good, isn't it? <laughs> it is, this is the thing. Really good. Before we talk, obviously, about what the subject is, but you've kind of had your own sort of fascination with death. I mean, we're all, we're all fascinated with death, I suppose, but we're just briefly for our audience. Tell me where your particular fascination came from. Well, I think that everybody says the big taboos in the world are sex and death, the things we can't talk about. But when I was at school, we had a whole class about sex. But when it came to death, I went to a Catholic school. So we were taught about heaven and what happened to our souls. But I had all of these practical questions about what actually happened to the bodies. Mm. And no one ever answered them to me. And if you tell a kid, oh, don't ask about that, or you're not supposed to know about those things. I think that's definitely a formula for some kind of obsession or a preoccupation. I, I was just really interested to know what happened. And it all sort of snowballed when a friend of mine drowned when I was 13. And I felt like not being able to understand what was happening to her and her body past mm. you know, her death, she drowned was a block in front of my grief. I had all of these questions and no one would answer them properly or in any way that I felt did answer them. It was just things about heaven. And I knew there were practical things. So I just used my position now as a journalist, as a nosy journalist, to go and ask everyone what it was about and to show me what they do for a living. There are practical problems, isn't there? I don't know, the human condition isn't really geared towards dealing with death. We get so attached to people. And then suddenly when they're not there anymore, we can't really fathom it. And I suppose culturally, throughout all of human history, we're so conditioned to try and survive past one's own death, which is why I guess we invent things like religions and heavens and gods. You know, like yeah. this somehow is the kind of dress rehearsal for, for later on. And as you say in the book as well, particularly when you're young, 
I also had a friend who drowned, really, actually, at the same age. Actually, I was a little bit older. I was 18 or 19, and a very close friend of mine drowned. And apart from the sort of grief of that, but dealing with, as you say, the practicalities of suddenly that person not being there. And it was really weird, actually. I remember um, her mother sent me a pair of her pyjamas, which I really liked. And it still had her scent on the Mm pyjamas. And it was the weirdest thing, not just the visual things of the pyjamas, but the scent of someone. Anyway. Yeah. Um, Let's talk about surviving death. If you're a Catholic, there's obviously ways that you can do that. Confession, pearly gates, that kind of thing. (laughs) It's not guaranteed, if I'm honest. Mm -hmm. But I certainly remember when I was a kid in the 70s and 80s, this idea of, well, what I used to call cryogenics. But actually, you point out in the book, it's not cryogenics. It's this idea of freezing yourself. An ambulance to the future. I like this idea that somehow if you're dying of something, you have some terrible condition. The moment of death, you can freeze yourself. We'll come onto the terms in a moment. And then hopefully sometime hundreds of years in the future, they'll come up with a cure for whatever it is you died of, defrost you in the microwave, and then yeah. sort you out. And then, hey, we're back again. It's not called cryogenics, is it? This is a popular misconception. No. And I blame things like Fry in Futurama and Austin Powers and also <laughs> Woody Allen's character in Sleeper. You know, the various pop culture things, even when people talk to me now in interviews, it's still cryogenics, even though I've written it explicitly explaining. (laughs) It's not that. It's just really baked in. So cryogenics is basically a branch of physics that deals with the production and effects of very, very low temperatures. So food can be cryogenically frozen to keep it fresh. Mm -hmm. But cryonics is for the preservation of corpses for later revival. And cryonics are the supposed crazy people, Got it. which is why the cryogenic people, well, they both get annoyed that they're tied up together. <laughs> okay, so we've got the general idea. So freezing yourself at the point of death in order to hopefully survive death later on into the future. Mm-hmm. Tell me the difference between, if you can, freezing and vitrification. Because again, it's, it's the same. I think, oh, you just dip someone in liquid nitrogen or something and they freeze them. But it's mm. not freezing. It's not, is it? No, it's different. So what they do when they receive the bodies, is they put them through a process called perfusion. And that's not a cryonics term. That just refers to any fluid moving through the vessels in the body. So chemotherapy drugs, they're entered in the body through the process of perfusion. And regular embalming is perfusion as well. Mm. But the thing with cryonics is that they inject an entirely different fluid. It's not embalming fluid. And there's a reason for this. They call it straight freezing patients. And the problem with just straight freezing them, which is, you know, sticking them in the vat with liquid nitrogen, is that if you cool the outside of the body at a different rate to the inside of the body, the water freezes in the cells and causes them to rupture. It causes this thing called interstitial damage, which is ice crystals forming in the spaces between things. So, It causes brain cells and organ cells to break down. It's basically what happens when you get frostbite. Mm, Your cells break apart and they are unsalvageable. So what the cryonics people did is they hired this cryobiologist and he took his inspiration from frogs, these Arctic frogs, and he came up with a fluid that is based on something that their body does in the cold. They sort of go to sleep in the winter. They freeze and come alive again in the spring with their hearts beating. Mm. And, you know, they've basically gone into a kind of hibernation. Essentially, when the temperature drops for them, they've got these special proteins in the blood that suck the water out of the cells 
And meanwhile, their liver is pumping out these huge amounts of glucose to prop up the cell walls so nothing collapses. Mm -hmm. And the way it was explained to me by Dennis Kowalski, who is the current president of the Cryonics Institute, he said that the glucose sort of snaps into place like maple syrup on a cold day. He says it's more like glass than actual water freezing. And this is what they do to the bodies when they arrive at the Cryonics Institute. And what it does when they do the perfusion, what embalming fluid would do is sort of expand the body. It doesn't bloat the body, but it sort of props it up again. Because when people die, everything in them sinks. Their faces sink. Their bodies sink. Everything becomes more, it protrudes. You know, bony structures in the face protrude, bones protrude. What this fluid does is it shrinks the body and it's the opposite thing. It's taking water away, whereas embalming fluid is putting moisture in. And Hillary, who works at the Cryonics Institute and is the woman who showed me around, she said that the people who go through this process end up looking sort of bronzed and mummified. Mm. And, and the way I described it in my book is they take a grape and they make a raisin. Yeah. And then that's what goes into the cryostat tanks. And that's filled with liquid nitrogen. I, I see. Okay. So we just have to clear a few things up here. First of all, the final chapter of your book, you go to Detroit and you visit this place and you meet the people involved and you, you tell us the story. Mm -hmm. Well, when people hear about this, they, they think, oh, it must work. No one's been reanimated, if that's the right word, from this. This is highly speculative this is why it's still in the realms of science fiction, isn't it? This isn't some kind of legitimate yep. procedure that you can get on the NHS. No. This is like, maybe it'll work, maybe it won't. And the word you use, mummification, is really interesting because, again, the idea of mummification is surviving one's death. So we see it culturally across all cultures and across all time. So just explain to us a little bit about the history of this procedure. So it all started with a guy called Robert Ettinger, who was a physics teacher living in Detroit. And in his 40s, he wrote this book about how he thought we could all live forever. And it was called The Prospect of Immortality. And what's weird is that it made him super famous for a very short time. He was on Johnny Carson's Tonight Show. You can see clips of him on the internet. And initially, his book started out as a little self-published pamphlet that he was pushing on people and he was hoping that once he got it into the right hands, he could spark this movement and you know he could change the world. Death would no longer be a thing because he believed that death was a disease and one not necessarily fatal. And he wasn't the first one to put this idea across. Well, he's kind of right, isn't he? I mean, as science technology comes along, we get cures for things and suddenly we manage to stave off. But no one's got out of here alive as Jim Morrison Reminded no. us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there are lots of people working on aging yeah. as a disease. and We don't and, like um, the idea of aging and dying generally. We invent creams for that sort of thing. <laughs> I did think when I started this that I would be going to find crazy people, but it completely stunned me. That's not what I found. Because I had read Ettinger's book and I found it to be mostly hopeful. It's very heavy on the science of freezing, but any question that came up, he'd go, oh, the future people will figure this out. Mm -hmm. And when you speak to people in cryonics, if there's any question, it's like, oh, people in the future will figure that out. 
But they do seem to admit, and you talk about this, that they don't really know. I mean, there is a built-in optimism, as you say, but they're quite honest. They seem to be quite honest about, you know, this. we don't know whether this will work, but yeah, you've got to be in it to win it. That's what I liked about it. They considered themselves to be part of this big experiment. And Dennis said that, you know, you can either be in the control group and be buried or burned, or you can be in the experimental group and be part of cryonics. And the thing is that no one at any point told me this is definitely going to happen. All of them were saying it might, but you know, the various things in the news about, uh, there was something in the New York Times about scientists reanimating part of a pig's brain Mm -hmm. and various other things. They kept saying that the science is pointing towards it maybe happening one day. But what I found interesting is that, they, like, I thought they'd be trying to convert me, and they they weren't. There was none of that. They were just kind of very gentle nerds who <laughs> did a lot of shrugging and saying, I don't know, maybe, uh, hopefully. And, I like gentle um, nerds. <laughs> they're my people. So, yeah, it was completely different to what I thought I was going to find. And I also found that the Cryonics Institute itself, this building, was not, you know, a huge space age warehouse or something. It was just this little brick building in a really boring part of town. It's a 20 minute drive out of Detroit in somewhere called the Clinton Township. And, you know, next to it was a lighting company and a heating company, just boring headquarters, Mm -hmm. boring offices. It looked like temp offices, really. And that's where they keep all the bodies. Yeah, very different. Uh, you mentioned Sleepo. I suppose Alien, all those films, you know, it's all very space aged. Yeah. And um, damn it, I want dry ice everywhere and like lighting. I, <laughs> I if I'm know. paying like hundreds of thousands of dollars to do that, I want the whole kit and caboodle. Yeah. I want it to look badass. And you want some neon, I want neon, neon lights. There's none of that. I want robots. I want the whole thing. <laughs> These cryostats, the insides are like thermos bottles. So there's lots of insulation. And then there's a smaller tank inside it. And that holds, I believe, six to eight people. And they hang the people upside down like bats. And there's a reason for this. It's because the whole tank is filled with liquid nitrogen, which evaporates. So they have to keep topping up the liquid nitrogen. And they say that what they want is the last thing to defrost if there's a leak. The most precious thing is your brain because they figure they can make you a new toe in the future, but they can't make a whole new you, you know, your brain. So that's why they hang them upside down like bats. And the thing that surprised me is that people visit that room with all of the cryostats like it's a cemetery. So the families of the dead or the temporarily dead, the cryonauts, they visit the tank. Cryonauts. I suppose they are dead. Let's just clear that. They're dead, aren't they? These people are not alive. No, they're very dead. They're not in some state between death and livingness. That depends on who you ask. If you mm. ask me, they are definitely dead, but the cryonics people would say this is a temporary state. They are currently, by our legal definition, though, very dead. You know, the annoying thing is, it's like if I was paying all, because it's expensive to do this as well, I want my own room. I don't want to share my tank with like six <laughs> other slight strangers. I'm like naked, upside down, hanging like a bat. I need my privacy. (laughs) You're wrapped in a shroud and you've got a sort of sleeping bag around you. So you're not nude. And also it's not as expensive as you think it's going to be. The place I went to, which is the Cryonics Institute, they charge $28,000 
to be frozen, whereas there's somewhere called Alcor in Arizona. I've heard of Alcor, yeah. Yeah, they charge more like 200000 and also you can have the option of just having your brain frozen, you know, like in Futurama. So the money thing, when Robert Ettinger wrote his book, mm. he didn't want this just to be a rich person thing. He wrote in his book that he didn't want it to serve as a eugenic sieve. So the way the Cryonics Institute has priced it, compared to the 200000 of Alcor, 28000 is not that bad. It's still enormously expensive. But they said it can be covered by life insurance. Okay. So money in this instance, I don't think is the huge thing. No. Although it can be. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk to my insurance people about this. Um, <laughs> oh, well, actually, just while you're on the subject of Alcor, they didn't freeze Walt Disney's head, did they? No, I think that is a lie. Everyone I've asked about it has said, no, that didn't happen. No. It's a nice story, though. It's funny because, you know, cryonics, as I now call it, because <laughs> I do it properly. It's one of those things along, <laughs> you. you know, growing up in the 80s, it was one of those things you'd read about in sort of those Osborne books of the unknown. There was a sort of childhood fascination with alongside sort of UFOs and ghosts and monsters and robots. There was something about that. And again, that idea of thinking about the future. So, you know, you've been there, you've talked to these people. Why would I want to do this? What reasons do people, in your experience, have for doing this rather than just saying, you know what, death and taxes it happens to us all. Why do I want to live into the future? Well, I asked this because the whole reason for me going was I had spent so long interviewing people who work with the dead and see death as an undeniable fact, something we cannot escape. And I wanted to ask them why they would spend so much of this life trying to get another one. You know, they do a lot of campaigning. They do a lot of talking about it. And I asked Dennis Kowalski, the president, straight up, is it because you fear death? And he said, no, because he's a paramedic in his day job. And he spends his life taking people to the hospital in that ambulance. And like you said, he considers this an ambulance to the future and a hospital in the future, should that hospital exist. And so he said it wasn't about fearing death at all. He likes life and he wants to get more of it. That's how simple it was for him. But when I spoke to Hillary, who does the perfusions in the building, I asked her if it was about fear of death. And she said, sort of. Nobody ever, when they sign up, says they're doing it because they fear dying. But I think it's just that she thought that the younger group, because there are lots of younger signups now, more than ever. And she says it's because people have a trust in technology that there hasn't been before, which I think is interesting. Because when I tried to interview Dennis Kowalski, the internet kept dying, the Skype didn't work, <laughs> yes, and exactly. the technology was just not working. And he is putting all of his faith in technology. But I don't share his idea of this utopian future thing. You know, he's a science fiction nerd. He learned about cryonics from, you know, science fiction magazines. And I don't know if you're like me, but when you read science fiction, do the dystopian things hit more with you or is it the utopian ideas? It's really interesting. You know, you watch, yeah, I mentioned David Cronenberg or you watch Blade Runner, you Terminator, you see these sort of dystopian futures. I'm like you, I, I well... I don't have this slavish 
faith in technology for the same reasons when I hear unexpected item in the bagging area. You know, it doesn't fill me with that transhumanist dream. It just makes me cross. Um, no. There's something you said that's really interesting. You said that at the place in Detroit and you talk to these people, they don't fear death, but in a way they want more of life. And reading your book, which I've become slightly obsessed about, it's really good. Every so often, there's just a couple of lines. You've got a very good turn of phrase. There's a couple of lines. I just want to read this. It's from the chapter on cryonics. To me, this really kind of sums up the whole thing about our attitudes to death and why people do this. You write... Life is meaningful because it ends. We are brief blips on a long timeline colliding with other people, other unlikely collections of atoms and energy that somehow existed at the same time that we did. Even in the best circumstances, being reanimated could result in a permanent homesickness for a time and a place you cannot return to, a time and a place that no longer exists. But if none of this is hurting anyone, if it helps these people live and it helps them die, I see no reason to deprive them of their experiment or to mock it. I like their optimism, but I do not share it. We do what we can to get by. It is a lullaby on a deathbed. Who wrote that? That's great. I don't know who wrote that. It's pretty good, though. <laughs> it's pretty good. I have to say I'm with you on everything about that. You know, life is only good because it ends. For me, it's like it just went on forever. If you're immortal... Like in Douglas Adams, like in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, it just becomes pointless. Exactly. I think for me, I spent too many teenage years reading too many vampire novels to believe mm. that living forever is in any way good or desirable. So I don't share them. I agree. And a bit like podcasts as well. They're only good because they have to end. <laughs> yes. Unless you're Joe Rogan and then you go on for hours and hours and hours. I think that's a good place to pause but listen, thank you so much for coming on and chatting about it and your experiences with the cryonics, the people of the cryonics. It's a great read. It's really good. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was Hayley Campbell. Uh, her book, All the Living and Dead, is out now and it's absolutely terrific. Uh, we're going to be back after this quick break with an interview with Tim Gibson from Cryonics UK, a not-for-profit organisation who provide assistance to cryonic patients from administering the procedure to ensuring the bodies are shipped to the storage provider, etc., etc. So <laughs> if you're interested in freezing yourself at the point of death, stay tuned. I think there's a misunderstanding in general culture as to what death is. And death is just the point when current science has given up trying to fix you. And in some cases, they give up before they've run out of ideas. Hi there, I'm Kate Lister, sex historian and author and I am the host of Betwixt the Sheets, The History of Sex, Scandal in Society, a new podcast from History Hit. Join me as I root around the topics which have been skipped over in your school history lessons. Everything from the history of swearing, to pubic hair, satanic panic, cults, there is nothing off limits. We'll be bed-hopping around different time periods, from ancient civilizations to the Middle Ages, to Renaissance and early modern, right up to now. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Tim, thank you so much for coming on the show. I am fascinated by this. And, you know, before we get into the history and that kind of stuff, I want to talk to you just so I can do the frequently asked questions. Maybe you could just explain to the uninitiated what cryonics is and what your main function is. In simple terms, it's freezing dead people. But that's kind of a little bit crude for a description. I think the origin is the important bit to start with. So we've got a lot of people who liked to stay alive, thought being dead was a really bad idea and tried to get around it. And cryonics developed as the only sensible solution so far, or not sensible. Well, we'll come on to that, but maybe you could just explain what the process of cryonics actually is, just from a scientific engineering point of view. So basically you start at the point of clinical death, so cardiorespiratory arrest, dilated pupils, all that kind of thing. Then you place your patient basically straight back onto life support but with various drugs to suppress any sort of reaction. So in theory, when you take someone who's just died, pop them on life support, they could wake up again. So you have to use an anaesthetic. Generally speaking, there isn't a massive risk because they're pretty dead. You know, they've broken for a Wait, reason. Wait, hang on. So pretty dead as opposed to actually dead. Where's the What I mean line? is, is that they've uh, systemically failed because they're in a bad way. So right. the chances of booting them back up again are quite low. Okay. And there'd be a doctor there saying, okay, you're free to carry on. Yeah. Essentially, if you're in a hospital or under a doctor anyway, the doctor will say, well, they're expected to die. You know, when they stop breathing, they're all yours, basically. Okay. But there is this possibility that you could effectively push them back over the little line that says they're dead and bring them back to life. It's never happened to us. I don't know anyone it's happened to, but the theory is there. Okay. Well, carry on. So you're there. What happens next? We basically try and keep them in that condition so that they stay in the condition that they were in just as they died. So you stick them onto life support, you cool them down, and as you cool them down, the need for metabolic support disappears or reduces. And we try to get them down to about 10 to 20 degrees before we go any further. Okay, so you don't just chuck them straight into liquid nitrogen or anything like that. So it's a gradual process. It's a water ice bath with cardiac support and a ventilator and then a load of drugs to basically stabilise biochemistry. Because once the brain's not doing anything, everything goes haywire. So you've got to do some extra stuff. And then when you get them cold enough, effectively you've got a big window of opportunity to take them off life support without doing a lot of damage. And then you can do a blood washout, replace the blood with, a, in crude terms, an antifreeze, which means that you can then take them down below freezing without a great deal of damage. After that, you basically put them into... Supercooling, which is dry ice first. That takes them down to about minus 70 over three days. And then they can be shipped to wherever they're going to be stored. So most of our patients end up in the US. I was looking on your website. There's a line on your website, which I think is quite useful, that kind of explains why you do this. You talk about it as an ambulance to the future. Yeah. What is the point of this? Like, why, why do we want to do this? I think there's a misunderstanding in general culture as to what death is. 
And death is just the point when current science has given up trying to fix you. And in some cases, they give up before they've run out of ideas. So, for example, if you've got a disease that's just going to get worse and you're just going to be in more and more pain, at some point they decide to stop treating you. And that's what takes you over the edge. So, for example, we've had a number of cancer patients who could have been kept alive for another few months, but they decide, no, you're in a bad way, you're not going to recover, we're withdrawing treatment, off you go. So, essentially, there's the possibility of extending life beyond what we do now anyway. Yes. And when you die, you're only going down a slope. So, you've got perfectly healthy at the top of the slope and total loss of information at the bottom of the slope, and cardiac arrest occurs somewhere in the middle. So we catch people at that point in the middle when cardiac arrest occurs. That's just a part of the process of decay. So the idea is to preserve them in this state, very, very cold, which kind of preserves all the different systems to a point where technology or science will catch up and science and technology medicine will be able to cure them or bring them back. Is that fair? There are different kind of viewpoints depending on which bit of cryonics culture you come from. Mm. So some people love the idea of continuity and they're they're still a little bit sort of spiritual in their mentality. Mm -hmm. They think that keeping everything and repairing it is really important. And then you've got the other extreme where people think, well, you're just a pile of data and one carbon atom is the same as the next. So why not start from scratch, build a new me, move the information over. You could even tell the new me that it's a copy. It won't mind because it's me. Well, this is the thing. It gets into all kinds of questions about where I am and who I am and what I am because I noticed on your website as well you can do things like whole body freezes you can freeze a whole body or you can just freeze a head yeah of course that raises all kinds of questions for me is like well why would you just freeze a head it would be the idea to take a brain out and stick it in another body therefore preserving that sense of self is that the idea for some people the idea is the only thing that matters is the information so Mm. you don't even need to keep the head you just need the information If it's just the information, have we not even sort of solved this technology-wise by inventing the internet and data? No, because the the brain's too complicated for the internet, sadly. (laughs) Yes, yes. And so the easiest way to store the data is to store the brain itself. Uh, So if you're taking that to an extreme, you could take it out of the head. But why take it out of its purpose-built container? It's just much simpler to keep the whole head. So it's a bit like, you know, when we buy a new computer, well, in the old days, you'd sort of take the hard drive out. And I've got like a load of old hard drives knocking around from old computers that I don't want to get rid of. Is that sort of fair enough? Is it's, that the idea? it's the way I like to think of it, yeah. I mean, can, can the I laptop talk? may be broken, but the hard drive's yeah. still there with everything okay. on it. Tim, I've got to ask how you got into this. I'm fascinated because, I mean, you will understand because I'm sure when people at dinner parties ask what you do and you explain this, you're going to get like a barrage of questions because it taps into something really primeval, primordial, yeah. you know, primal, about the human condition, which is we are aware of our mortality and we do whatever we can to sort of stave off, I want to say the inevitable, but you're taking the inevitable out of the equation. And it holds a fascination for people, both in terms of what might be possible, but also in kind of moral, ethical dilemmas, science fiction. There's been loads of science fiction stories written about this kind of thing. And also the kind of popular mythology about it, like Walt Disney froze his head, which I think is not true. But I'm interested in your fascination with it and how you got into it. The sad story is, I suppose, that the fascination started when I was in single digits as a little kid. So was it a fear of death that you thought, okay, I want to look into this a bit? That triggered the reaction, yeah. And I I spent my childhood thinking, how can I survive physically? I knew nothing about science. So, I mean, this history teachers told me about the Viking story and their meat in salt. 
And I thought, oh, I'm going to get a big tub of salt. That's how I'm going to make it to the future. But then I just happened to find out about cryonics through the TV. And I just thought, that's great. But obviously only rich people can afford that. Mm-hmm. And then a few more documentaries later, somebody popped up and said, oh, you can pay with life insurance. Oh, actually, no, they just told me the price. That was the mm-hmm. first clue. And I thought, that's okay. That's affordable. I'm going to start saving. But then I didn't even need to save because the next TV documentary mentioned the life insurance and I signed up the next day. I remember there was a bit in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and I can't remember which bit, but in order to pay to eat at the restaurant at the end of the universe, you had to deposit one penny, do you remember? And then cumulative interest by the time you got to the end of the universe, yeah, it would pay for you, which I guess is exactly the same thing. And where do you stand with it? I mean, because like you know, you're very honest on your website, this is experimental. We don't have any of the answers. But as you've studied it for so long, and now you're working in this field, are you confident in it? Are you more confident in it? Are you less confident in it? Or does it kind of wax and wane? The more you know, the more you think this is not going to work. <laughs> Wait, that's the wrong way around, surely. Yeah. Uh, so why are you still invested in it emotionally? That's the test. The question is that even if I convince myself that it's a really, really small chance, am I still willing to put my time and effort into it? And the answer mm. is yeah, because there's nothing else. I just feel like if I go through life with an inevitable dead end, it's a bit pointless. No, well, I see your point. But also, isn't it right to say that, you know, we have a finite number of years? It doesn't mean it's pointless. It means it's even more special and we have to look after life. That's a great way to make yourself feel comfortable. I I don't want to try and sort of persuade you otherwise. I'm just trying to imagine myself in your situation. I mean, of course we want to extend life. You know, it's why we buy life insurance and why we go to the doctor. And if our family members are ill, we want to get them better. So I do understand it. But there's no evidence of it working. That's the thing. No one's been frozen yet. We haven't brought anyone back. We don't know whether it works yet. I mean, has anyone tried and failed? Or I think the famous little experiment was a guy did a full blood wash out and cool down on his dog and then popped the blood back in and warmed it up and it walked away again. And it still remembered remember who he was. That. I remember that. It was a Russian doctor, I seem to remember. Yeah. In like the 1950s or something, or the 1960s. Yeah. I do remember that, yeah. They've done some other tests with little worms where they mm. uh, taught them to find their food by a certain recognised way of establishing that they'd learnt something. Mm. Then they froze them down to a ridiculous temperature, brought them back again, and they could yeah. still demonstrate that they remembered where the food was. That's really interesting. And, you know, you working in the industry, are you sort of happy about how the industry works in terms of how it's regulated, in terms of the science that happens? Is is there investment in it? Is it progressing in terms of the technology, do you think? I would say if we had the same money that was thrown into coronavirus vaccines, we'd be well well away. (laughs) Trouble is, there just isn't investment. I mean, there are a few Mm. wealthy people raising money and throwing their own money in, but it's Mm -hmm. just nothing in comparison. So what we're talking about here is buying a lottery ticket, really. There is no guarantees of anything. The chances of survival, in inverted commas, are slim. But it really is kind of, you've got to be in it to win it, even if it is very unlikely. The strange thing about it is the revival is the smallest problem, in one sense, because you're relying on the technology to develop and you can afford to wait for it. Mm. The hard part is whether you actually get frozen in a good condition. So a lot of patients that we have are fit and healthy. A lot of them are car crashes of ill health. And effectively, they've killed themselves before they even die by destroying their biological systems. So they have terrible physiology, which makes them harder to preserve well. So if you don't get a good preservation, you get tissue damage, you get data loss. 
But if you get past all those problems and you get good data preservation, it's just a waiting game. There's a million ethical questions I want to ask. Like, for example, let's imagine somewhere in the far future, we do resuscitate one of these people, but their condition is so terrible and they're in a kind of vegetative state. It won't happen because it's in the contract. <laughs> oh, okay. I haven't read this. The contract basically say, unless you can do it properly, don't do it. Oh, that's interesting. Do you think it's all kind of legit? I mean, for example, if I paid you £100,000 to turn up at the moment of my death, you're going to show up. You know, you're Hopefully. The, okay. So, I mean, in terms, of, in terms of what you specifically do, because I know it's a voluntary organisation, isn't it? You're not contractually obliged to turn up. And- no, well, we have one of those sneaky agreements that says, if we turn up for you, this mm-hmm. is the basis of the contract for turning up. The first part is we're not guaranteeing that we'll show up. And if we don't show up, you don't give us any money. Blimey. And you're paying for this insurance. You're doing this. So presumably you know the people who are going to turn up because you work with them. Well, yeah. The comical thing is that when I first signed up, I was only 19. And my dad was convinced I'd joined a cult. Well, they've not taken all my money yet. And now I'm in the cult. I'm one of the cult. It's funny. I mean, you must get all the questions from people. I'm wondering how you deal with it. Because you can understand, A, the scepticism about an operation like this. And B, the fact that it just raises so many difficult, moral, ethical, logistical, legal problems. Throw them all at me because I know all those answers. I know. Well, let's start with the law. I mean, is it legal? So the way the UK legal system works, at least, well, in theory, most of the legal systems are that if you don't write anything down, then there's nothing to stop you doing it. Sadly, quite a lot of countries have a different culture. And if they can't find anything that allows them to do stuff, they won't help you in case they get in trouble. Mm. But that just doesn't happen in the UK. If you walk in a hospital, or when we first started walking into hospitals, they would speak to the lawyer, and the lawyer would say, can't find anything to stop us doing this, let's carry on. Sounds a little bit kind of on the edge of the law, maybe. Well, not really. For a start, it's been to court. So there was a high court case back in 2016. A young girl basically had cancer. She'd read about cryonics on the internet. She asked her mum to help her. Her mum said, yeah, why not? They arranged some funding from relatives and then the estranged dad turned around and said, no, I disagree. And the hospital couldn't ignore him because he's the parent. So the family went to court basically to stop the dad interfering. Wow. And the judge specifically asked, we'll start from the beginning, is this legal? And they got various regulators in who said, we can't find anything that stops it being legal. It's not even regulated by us. It doesn't fall under our remit. And the court basically concluded that there was nothing to make it illegal, and therefore it was allowed. The phrase they use is lawful, because it's not banned or anything. No. I mean, the fact that not many people do it, I suppose, is a thing that if it became a common enough thing, then we'd have less questions about it and perhaps we'd sort of... I mean, you've only got to look at how heart transplant started. I mean, Mm. when Christian Barnard first started, he was called a monster, and people worried about where their soul was going to go, and... Who would they fall in love with if they had someone else's heart and crazy stuff like that? So that was definitely a bad thing when it was invented, apparently. (laughs) You know what this reminds me of? It reminds me of mummification in Egypt, the idea that the pharaoh would die or whoever would die and you would pull their organs out and put them in canopic jars and wrap them in balms and ointments and preserve the body. The idea of preserving oneself seems to go back to the beginning of time, really. Yeah. We still get people phoning us up trying to cryopreserve people who've already been buried. And we kind of shy away from them and say, no, this is not what we're about. We're not in the business of mummification. 
We're trying to preserve data and there won't be any. Yeah. Great thing about mummification, and I've worked with a few mummies, is that they do preserve the body and you can learn all kinds of extraordinary things about the past from studying mummies. And I'm wondering, you know, actually in decades in the future or hundreds of years, people will find these and learn all kinds of things about us and in a similar kind of way. Well, if we make it, the companies could go bust. Well, this is it. This is it. But they do have mechanisms to get around this. I mean, first of all, they're all non-profit and non-profits are statistically more likely to survive. They also separate out all their funding. So you've got an organisation that runs the daily activities. You'll have a separate fund that looks after patients. You'll have a separate fund that owns a building. And all these are not connected. So let's say if somebody falls out with what they call the storage provider and tries to sue them, they can't actually touch the money that looks after the patients because it's a separate amount of money. So it's basically a giant trust fund. Why do you want to live into the future? What what excites you about the future? Well, I like what I'm doing today. Well, to a point. (laughs) Going to work's not great, but you know. (laughs) What's your day job, by the way? I'm a landlord. Property. Property, okay. But basically, I just think I'd rather find out what's going on in the world and see what happens and see what the future turns into. And, uh, you know, when people turn around to me and say, oh, why would you want to live forever? Life's rubbish. I just think that's a bit sad because I just don't feel that way. I think it's a worthwhile thing to do. And the thing that really makes it worthwhile is the fact that you could make it go on forever or at least a long time. That's a good place to pause. Tim, thank you. Okay, that is it for today. Really, really interesting episode. Goodness, lots to uh, lots to process there. Thank you very much to Tim and Haley for joining us today. I really, really enjoyed speaking with them both. Absolutely fascinating episode. Uh, if you enjoyed the episode today as well, don't forget, leave us a review and a rating, uh, all that kind of thing, or even share the episode with a friend, frozen or not, uh, who may enjoy it. That's going to really help us out. Inspired by our interview with Tim, we're going to be covering the invention of mummification. So stay tuned for that and subscribe now to catch new episodes every Wednesday and Sunday. I'll look forward to your company again soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch, download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play, and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Falk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code PATENTED at the checkout. You get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.